Okay, so um, I do want to say this real quick. Um, Andrew is going to start that class August 7th on Esther. I just, he's my brother, I love him, and so I feel the need to say, don't hold him to the standard that you see on a weekly basis. Okay, it's not fair to him, it's not fair to anybody, okay? Just so we're clear on that. Uh, we have now started the third and final part of our series of being like Jesus. This is the living like Jesus part. And for next week, I've been for weeks now getting these ready. And this one right here, I can't wait for. I cannot wait for next week to preach on joy. It's going to be wonderful. So you just need to be, not because of me, but because of the text and because of everything that we're going to talk about joy. And we need to hear it. As Christians, we need to hear about this. So next week will be on joy. This week won't be nearly as exciting. It's just love. But this is what I want you to think about for next week. If I were to die today... Would the people that come to my funeral, would they say of me, his life or her life was one that was filled with joy? Is that what they would say of you? Does it define your character to the point that that is what people would acknowledge about your life? I don't mean happiness. I don't mean wealth and prosperity. Joy. Is that what people would say about your life? Think about that as you read these two passages, Psalm 95 and the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that one. 16th chapter, that's for next week. For this week, I don't need to say this because I think you know it, but I will reiterate this. The order in which things happen, the way that they fall, the way that they occur, the way that things are listed, that order is oftentimes significant. It's not by chance. We're getting ready to start school again, which we're all excited about. I actually get excited about this, which means I'm going to start teaching about the founding of America and all of that. Think about the founding documents. When the founding fathers talk about our unalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that isn't just randomly they're throwing those out there. Life is listed first for a reason. Because without the right to life, you have no liberty, you have no ability to pursue happiness. They're listed in that order for a reason. In the Constitution, the first article is about the legislative branch, and then the second is the executive, and the third is the judicial. And why? 3,000 words on the legislative, 1,000 on the executive, 300 on the judicial. It represents the importance that those branches play in American government, that the focus of power is in the legislative. Things are listed, and if you don't want to think about school stuff, most of us know about this, right? Either you are born into a family with multiple children, or you're one of those children, or you know a family that has multiple children, and you've seen the way the birth order stuff plays out, the way firstborn children are, the way us middle children that are always neglected are, and then you've got the baby of the family. If you've never seen that, take a look at this and tell me it doesn't ring true. Thanks, Mom. Yes. I said the red plate. I'm not eating that. I can do it myself. There's a door there. I should have known that. door for me. Wow. Look at all these cute pictures of me, Mom. Oh, those are my pictures? Oh, I've never seen these. Do you have any pictures of me, Mom? On your phone? This is all you got? Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Mom. 
I said the jasmine cup. Time to be done. Yes, Mom. Turn it off. I'm almost done. Shut the games off. Can't hear you. Shut it off. Still can't. Going with these, I had to trim that down. That was a five-minute video, and I cut it down to like a minute and a half. Okay, the laughter is there because you know a lot of that is accurate. Okay, now there's always exceptions. There's always exceptions to every rule, but that is true. So we get this idea that the order that things are listed, there's, there's significance behind it. Well, I want to take that to what we read last week in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit, in listing the attributes, the character traits of Jesus, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is, which is why that's what we want to embrace and have evident in our lives. We want to live like Jesus. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit lists love first. Yes, what I said last week, I still stand by, that the fruit of the Spirit is all collective. It's one thing. It is the fruit of the Spirit. But I think there is a reason, I think we're foolish to ignore, that love is listed first among those ingredients. And I'm going to use that analogy because I think it's perfect. Last week, I'm walking out of church, I'm going to the car, and Sue Adams is sitting in her car, and she yells at me, she says, Peter, I look over, and she gives me one of these, she's like, get him. And whenever Sue gives you a you go over there. So I go over there, and she's telling me about uh, a couple. Uh, there's some folks that they visit, I think, on a monthly basis and bring them stuff and, and just to, to be supportive and all of that. And she had just taken them a fruit salad that week with verses and, and scripture references to the fruit of the Spirit. So I, being the smart aleck that I am, I said, well, were there nine fruits in the salad? Because there's nine fruit of the Spirit. And she looked back and said, yes. Like, like, duh, of course there were nine in there. And she said this, and it hit me, Sue should just be preaching, because this is what I was struggling so hard to communicate last week, and I'm using dumb analogies, and I don't think it ever landed, but this is it. That there are nine fruits, but there's one taste. When you have fruit salad, yes, you can taste the individual elements in it, and there's the burst of flavor, but fruit salad has a taste to it. Bingo. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's all one taste. There's the individual elements that will explode in your character, and people will see it, and it'll be evident, but it has one taste. That is the fruit of the Spirit, and love is the key ingredient in that. If there is one key ingredient in being like Jesus, in living like Jesus, it has to be love. Right? Because Paul is putting it out here first in the fruit of the Spirit, but all he's doing is echoing Jesus. You remember in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is key. But the question that I have is, what does love mean? We say that word all the time. There are so many different definitions of the word love especially in our culture today. We say that, that Britney Spears is in love with Kevin Federline. That was her first husband of many. But we're going to use that same word to describe Britney Spears and Kevin Federline and their relationship, the same word that we use to describe the love that existed between Bob and Rebecca Ellis. Seventy years of committed marriage together. I mean, there's a problem there that we use this term so flippantly. What does love actually mean? I think it's the most overdefined term in our language. We apply it to all kinds of things. Oh, I love that buffet that they've got at the Sizzler. 
I don't know why Sizzler just popped into my, is there even Sizzler anymore? I don't know, but uh, uh, what's the Golden Corral or whatever it is. Four different types of love is what you'll see biblical writers talk about. And then you look it up online and there's the six different types of love and the eight different types. There's one article I saw on the 12 different types of love, 12 different kinds of love. Then how in the world am I supposed to, and you read this, well, you've got Eros, that's romantic love. That's the love that you feel when you're falling in love with someone. And then you've got Philia, which is affectionate love. And I'm sitting there right off the bat and saying, but isn't affectionate love the same thing as romantic love? It seems to be the same thing to me. And then you've got Fayusha, and that is uh, self-love. Like when you look in the mirror and you're like, all right. Like you, you, maybe you all don't do that. I do that on a regular basis. And then you've got familial love, the love that you feel for your parents or your grandparents. You've got obsessive love. That's like the love that we feel for Peyton Manning or for John Bon Jovi, those kind of things. That's mania. And then you can keep going with this. As a teacher, I see this. And as a, a simple teenage use, uh, this is a, you, you know, mixtapes. Does anybody out here remember mixtapes? Like my age group is gonna be the mix. Okay, there's people out here that did the mixtapes. Mixtapes, it used to be on cassettes and then CDs, we moved into CDs. That's when you knew that you were in with somebody, when they made you a mixtape. And let me tell you something, when Jenny and I dated, okay, uh, her name was Jenny Mount, and so I called her J-Mo, and she, I found this. I've got J-Mo's top-notch mix. She made that for me. Do you know whenever I hear the songs from that CD playing, I still get all those feelings. It's wonderful. And so whenever she yells at me at home, I go into the closet and I put on the headphones and I listen to this. <laughs> the pure days when she liked me. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. So you have the mixtape love. And then at school, I see the wastos. That is where a kid has been dating a, another kid. They've been out for like three weeks and a day. And so he feels the need on their three weeks and a day anniversary to buy a 24 rose bouquet and send it to them through the inner office mail. And you sit there and look at that. Where are you going to go, dude? When this is three weeks and a day and you're sending 24 roses, what are you going to do in the future? And then you got parent, parentus. This is the kind of love. I love my kids so much. You just want to squeeze them till their little heads pop off. That is different types of love. So that's what I'm saying. We can keep going and going and going with all these different kinds of love. I can't keep up with them. Some of them overlap. I showed you those. And some of them flatly contradict one another. Okay, I'll give you an example of this. Right now, you're hearing all of this talk about monkeypox, right? It's everywhere in the news. The World Health Organization has just announced that we are in the midst of a global pandemic of monkeypox, that this is a worldwide health emergency. But what does the Worldwide Health Organization and the CDC also point out? That monkeypox is exclusive to the community of men having sex with men. That unless you're a man having sex with another man, then you don't really need to worry about monkeypox. Okay, so what you have here, this isn't just homosexual conduct because lesbians aren't getting monkeypox. It is exclusive to men having sex with men. But we would say that a man who is in love with another man is experiencing eros. He has romantic love, so that is a type of love. But wait a minute, when you engage in an activity where you know there is a high degree of likelihood that the person you're engaging it with, that that person could and you could come down with something as deadly as monkeypox, are you acting in love when you're engaging in that activity with another person? If love is seeking the ultimate good of the object, then to engage in that activity that you know can lead to this is certainly not a loving act. I'll tell you what that is. It seems like lust and selfishness is playing a big part in that, but we call it eros. The Bible tells us that, that love is not self-seeking. So here we have two different types of love that are completely contradictory. So how am I supposed to know what that means? That love is part of my Christian character. What is the word that Paul is using here? 
I don't want to use the word love because the word love in English is completely obliterated and perverted and twisted and corrupted. Well, the word that he uses, the original, and you've heard this before, is called agape. Agape is God love, is what it means. This is where you serve another human being for their own good, for their intrinsic value. It has nothing to do with what you get out of it. Sometimes we love someone because of what we get out of it. We love them because of the way that they make us feel. We love them because of the way they make us look. They're an attractive person and it gives us greater status in society or prestige in society. Maybe they've got a high position. And so if we have a relationship with them, we are getting something out of it. That is not agape. Agape is where you have no consideration for yourself, but you are acting only in the best interest of another. And Paul introduces this idea of agape, but it's actually John who writes more about it than any other writer in the New Testament. In his gospel, he mentions it three times when he's quoting Jesus. When you see this, this is him mentioning the highlighted terms is where he's using the term agape. Where Jesus commands, a new command I give you, agape, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Then he says in the 15th chapter, Jesus does, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And a few verses later says the same thing, this is my command, love each other. Over and over and over, Jesus is commanding this. And then, in his first letter, I had you read two of the chapters, it's got all five references John has in that letter to this agape love. In chapter 3, you saw this. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should agape, we should love one another. And then he gives a description of what that'll look like. If any, And we'll come back to this passage in just a second. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or in speech, but with actions and in truth. And then he says this. This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to agape one another, to love one another as he commands us. And the other two are in 1 John chapter 4. That's the text I want to be in, so flip there if you've got your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, and I want to look specifically at 7-11. Verses 7 to 11 in John chapter 4. That's where I'm going to start. Dear friends, let us love one another. Again, stress this. This is, I'm going to act in a way that benefits you because of who you are, because of your intrinsic value for your good, not me. That's what he's saying. Let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the key word. That word right there, ought. What do you immediately think of when you read, because God loved us, we ought to love one another? I'm going to guess that 99% of you are like me, that you hear the word ought, and it's the same way you always hear the word, well, you ought to do this. You know, you really ought to do that. What is a person saying when they say that? They're saying, you should do this. And that's the way we interpret that passage and read it. Because he loved us, we ought to love other people. He did it, so we ought to do it. We think it's imitation. That Jesus acted in this way, and so therefore, if we're going to be his followers, we should imitate that and act in that way. That's the way I've always understood this passage. And then as I'm preparing this, and I'm reading some of these commentaries, all of the commentary writers are saying the same thing, and it totally blew my mind. It kicked me in my bottom. And I think this may kick you in your bottom, and we can have sore bottoms together. This is the problem that we've got here. Number one, 
consider why Jesus came. When you consider why Jesus came to the earth, the idea that I'm simply supposed to imitate him, it falls flat. That's not the reason Jesus came. Did Jesus simply come? If Jesus came to show me how to live a good life, and then I spend my entire life modeling myself after him and doing my best to follow his example, and I die, I'm going to hell. If that's the only reason he came, to model for me how I should interact with other people, I can do that my whole life and then go to hell. Why did Jesus come? Yes, he sets an example, but Jesus came to be a savior. And when you understand that, then imitation is not the point of the incarnation. That was a really good phrase. I'm gonna say that again. The point of the incarnation, uh, you like how I compliment myself in the middle of the messages? It's really weird. Uh, but anyway, so like the incarnation, when Jesus comes to earth, the point of that is not simply for us to learn to imitate him. That's great to imitate Jesus, but that's not the point of him coming. And read the previous verses that I just read. That shows you this, this idea of loving is not about imitation. That's not what's going on here. This is a different kind of ought. Here is, see if this helps it make more sense. These kinds of uses of the word ought. Fish ought to swim in water. And birds ought to fly in the air. And apples ought to grow on trees. And lemons ought to make you pucker. And soccer ought to not be played. Okay, this is... You know it's true. Anyway, we'll take that one out. This is what I'm talking about. Of course, fish, they ought to swim in water because that's why they were made. They, they were made to do that. And birds ought to fly in the air. They were made to do that. And that's the point. Born again people ought to love because that's who we've been made to be. We've been made in that image. It's not imitation. It's who we are. That's the point that I really struggled to understand and grasp, but that's what John is saying. We ought to do it because that is who we are. That's who our nature becomes. In, in other words, forget imitation. Let's switch that word and say it's realization. When we love as Christians, we are realizing who we are in Christ. I'm not sure this is landing, but I'm doing my, be my best. God is in us. The Holy Spirit is filling us. His love is being perfected in us, and that is going to manifest in the way that we behave. Here's how a lot of people view it, and I, I mean Christians too. We think that we're able to love people who are unlovable because we look at what Jesus did for us, and we say, well, if he could do that for me, then I can love this person that's so hard to love. In other words, we are saying that our acts of love are motivated, motivated by guilt. You see that, right? Well, I don't really want to love this person, but I guess since Jesus loved me and he did that for me, then I should do this for these people over here. And so Christian love is totally motivated by this sense of obligation and guilt. It's like the tree I talked about last week. A tree sitting there saying, well, I don't really want to have an apple on me, but I suppose I should, so it pops out an apple. That's not the way it works. The apple comes naturally as part of the tree. We as Christians, it's not this sense of guilt that motivates our love for other people. It's simply who we are. That's, we're realizing that's who we are. He did it, so I will? No, that's not it at all. I mean, maybe there's an external influence in that way. But the much more powerful force is the internal force of God's love welling up inside us and, and, and manifesting in ways that we can't even control. The very love that sent Jesus into the world. Stop and think about how much love that took. For God to send his only son into the world. The very love that held Jesus on the cross when he certainly did not need to stay there. That is the love that is living and indwelling us. And it cannot help but become evident in our lives. And I will suggest if it is not evident in your life, there's a reason. One of two. One, you are not 
a believer and follower of Christ. Number two, and you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. Or number two, and hopefully this would apply more to us because hopefully we're all believers. Number two would be you are doing something in your life to thwart the love of God. I don't know what it is, but you're doing something to prevent that from coming out. And we need to figure out what it is. The Holy Spirit is connecting our dead hearts to God's living and loving heart. His life becomes our life. And his love becomes our love, and it pours out of us. Remember, John is teaching us here that love is not an attribute of God. Uh, I'll see if this analogy helps. I'm full of wonderful, useless analogies. Okay, you, you've got a tree, a living tree, and it produces fruit, and that's how you know it's alive. Then you have a dead tree, like a Christmas tree. You know, you chop it off and you put it up in your living room, or maybe it's an artificial tree. It kind of looks and resembles life, and we go up and we decorate it to make it look really pretty. Okay, that's the difference here. There are people who try to put all of these attributes on their Christmas tree, but it's not alive. The living tree is going to produce fruit and be beautiful and blossom simply because of the life in it. That's what we're after. And John is saying love is not an attribute of God that you hang on his tree. No, God is love. That's what he's saying in this passage. God is love. Go back and look at verses 7 and 8 again. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's the point. God is love. All God does is an expression of his love, because he is love. You say, wait, wait a minute. He flooded the earth, man. He wiped out all living things. He, he torched Sodom and Gomorrah. You're saying everything that he does is love? Yes. His seemingly harsh judgment in our eyes, that is his love defending itself and defending those who follow him against uh, those who would thwart the good plan that he has for all of us. That is an expression of God's love. God's entire attitude towards all he's created is loving, and he tells us that himself. The psalmist writes the words, the Lord is good to all. He is loving towards all he has made. God's actions always are loving because God is love. It's so hard because we think that love exists as a definition, and then we attribute love to various things. No, no, no. God is the definition of love. How do I know if something is loving? You compare it to the character of God. And if it is in line with the character of God. So when you encourage someone to embrace something that God has forbidden, you're not acting in love. It's the polar opposite of love because God is love. Now, maybe a hijacked worldly understanding of love in that sense, but not actual love because God is love. The most enduring and sustainable and reliable force in this universe is God's love. That's the kind of love that exists in you and exists in me. The kind of love that is manifesting in us. And what happens when it does? Well, now you go back to that passage from 1 John. In 1 John, I saw three things. These are three checkpoints for us. Are these things happening in my life? I need to know if these things are happening because this is what the, the scriptures are telling me. This is the kind of stuff that will evince itself, will make evident itself in our lives. Number one, the first thing that I see here, lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We become self-sacrificial. Is your life one that is marked by self-sacrifice? Where you are not thinking of yourself, but for the intrinsic good of others, you are acting. That's one of the ways that this love of God evinces it because again, this is what Jesus did. And he said, that's the example that we are seeing in Scripture. Second thing, we have pity on those who are less fortunate. What does that mean? How does that play out? Well, we don't care about our possessions anymore. 
We're not pursuing grand wealth and the biggest homes and all of that stuff. We rightly understand that everything we possess is God's. And so we freely give of it to anyone who is in need because that's making use of something in a powerful way that isn't ours to begin with and we're building the kingdom of God. That is the love of God. When you don't worry about your bank account but instead are worrying about caring for someone else in need, I'll figure out how to make ends meet later. I need to care for this person. That's the very element of agape where you are not thinking of yourself but you're thinking of others. And the third one is to love with actions and truth. Not just our words. We're not telling the world how much we love them. They are seeing it in our actions to the point that we don't have to tell them. I, I think, uh, let me read this story to you. I, I came across this this week. In 1970, a young father by the name of James Lee shot himself in a phone booth next to a tavern. He just called a Chicago newspaper and told a reporter to be looking for a manila envelope telling his story. The reporter frantically tried to trace the call, but by the time he did and contacted the police and they arrived, it was, it was too late. In Lee's pockets, the police found a child's crayon drawing with a statement that Lee had written that said, please leave in my coat pocket. I want to have it buried with me. The picture was signed in childish print by his little daughter, Shirley Lee, who had perished with her mother, Lee's wife, in a fire just five months before. The package he sent to the newspaper included a letter that said since all he had in life was gone, he felt utterly alone. He'd given his modest fortune to their church in Shirley's name, hoping that maybe in 10 or 20 years someone would see one of the plaques and wonder who Shirley Ellen Lee was and say to themselves, someone must have loved her very much. He said that he could not stand his grief and unbearable feelings of loss, and so he took his own life. He felt it better to be dead than live in such loneliness. So I read this story. And my reaction, and hopefully I'm not alone in this reaction, hopefully I'm in front of a room of people that hear that and say, I wish I would have had the chance to love that person. I wish I would have been in that scenario and I could have mourned with him, I could have cried with him, I could have hugged him, I could have sat with him, I could have told him about the joy that he will one day see his little daughter and his wife again because of the promise we have in Christ. If only I would have had that chance to love him, I would have done it. I guess I've never been so convicted in my life that these people are all around us. It's too late for James Lee, but James Lee is everywhere around us, everywhere. I told you a couple weeks ago when Jenny and I were out in California and I don't know how to book flights and she flew back early on a different plane and then I got stranded in LA. As I was walking through the airport terminal, going over to try to find a, a ride to the hotel where they were putting me, I was going through the baggage claim and even at LAX, it was an emptied out baggage claim. There were a couple people standing to get bags, but there was this lady who was about my age and she was sitting there with her suitcases and was crying. I have no idea why she was crying, but she was obviously sobbing. And I thought to myself, I should go say something to her and ask her if there was something I could do or to pray for her. I should do that. But then Satan will always provide you excuses if you're looking for them. I thought, I don't want to be a weird guy. She's about my age. I don't want her to think that I'm hitting on her. I don't in any way, shape, or form want to be, uh, you know, not loyal to Jenny by going over and showing comfort to another family. So I'm coming up with all these reasons why I shouldn't go over there. So I said a prayer for her, but I never approached her. Now, I have no idea why she was crying to this day. Obviously, I never will. Maybe she had been in a little spat with her boyfriend who was in the bathroom, and he was going to come back out, and everything was going to be fine. Or maybe she just found out that she lost someone she loved. I have no idea. But James Lee was sitting right there. And I didn't say anything. That's what I'm getting at. 
There are James Lees everywhere. So we hear that story and we say, man, if only I would have had the chance to love them. We have that chance every day. They're all around us in your workplace. There are people who I guarantee you are at the end of their rope. They all are getting ready to go back to school. And there are kids who are dealing with things that no other kid knows anything about. They have no idea what's haunting them and the demons that they're dealing with. We have the ability to show that love. We know that in his love, when he walked the earth, Jesus saw these people. We should see these people. We have to if that love exists inside of us. Finally, one more miraculous thing that's going to happen when you have this love living inside you. Look at, look at verse 12 of 1 John 4. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. You know what John's saying right here? You know that God is not part of our physical world. It's why you've never seen God. None of us. He's not a thing. He's not a body that we can see or touch. Now, there are people who saw Jesus, and so because they saw Jesus, they saw the Father. Remember, that's what Jesus said, that anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, that's great for them because they saw Jesus in the flesh, but I haven't, and you haven't, and none of the people around us have, and the rest of humanity desperately needs to see God. So how do they see him? John just told us. John just said that our love for one another makes the love of God visible to the world. You say, well, yeah, you're, they're seeing the love of God. They're not seeing God. Stop it. What have we already said? We've already said God is love. So if they are seeing the love of God and God is love, they are seeing the face of God himself in our love. We can make God visible to the world around us. The invisible God makes himself visible through the love that we exhibit for one another. In 1994, um, the, in Rwanda, there was this, um, the Rwandan genocide. I don't know if anybody remembers when all that went on. We talk all the time in America about our racial problems. And I'm not suggesting or poo-pooing the racial issues that we've got in America. I'm just saying from a global perspective, America doesn't have any kind of race problems compared to other places in the world. And Rwanda's one of them. There's two tribes. I always hate saying this because of the, the Tutsi tribe. I know. I said that earlier, and somebody's like, that's when you have a little baby, and they go poo-poo in their diaper, you Tutsis. Okay, get past that for a second. You have two tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda. And the Tutsis are always persecuted. And in 1994, there are these armed militants that are wiping out the Tutsis. We call it the Rwanda Genocide. And they're just taking them all out. Now, the rival tribe, the Hutus, want to have nothing to do with the Tutsis. They're not being targeted. But then there were some that belonged to this organization. It was called the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. These were Christians. And Hutus, in the midst of the genocide of the Tutsis, these IFES students, Hutus, came and encircled Tutsi students. And when the armed militants came, they told them to get out of the way because if they didn't get out of the way, I mean, you can read this entire story. If they don't get out of the way, they will be slaughtered with them. And the Hutu students said, these are our brothers. These are rival tribes that hate each other, but they're united in Christ. It's the same thing you see in one of the most dangerous parts of the world in dangerous conflicts. The Israelis and the Palestinians lofting rockets back and forth, everybody claiming the same territory. When a Messianic Jew a Jew that has come to Christ, and a Palestinian Christian, in the midst of the violence and the bloodshed, embrace one another. You know what that is? I'll tell you what that is. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
There's only one explanation for why Hutus would wrap their arms around and die with Tutsis. There's only one explanation why a Messianic Jew and a Palestinian would embrace in the midst of bombs. Because they're his disciples. That's why. It's a love that transforms the world. When we are not known by our love, Christians, we are thwarting the very reason for our existence. You and I are to be disciples, and we are to make disciples, and we do so by sharing and living the love that has transformed our, our lives from the inside out. Maybe your life has not been transformed. Maybe you don't know this love that we're talking about because you've never surrendered your rebellious heart to Christ. Well, this is an opportunity for you to do that. We do it at the end of every service, and I know sometimes it just seems routine. Well, it's the end of the service, we've got to stand up, we've got to sing a song, and then we'll see if anybody comes forward. I don't want it to be rote, I don't want it to just be repetitious. There's a reason why we do this, because we are inviting those whose heart is cold and needs to be changed to come to Him. This is your opportunity to do that. Maybe you've already surrendered your heart, but you know that for whatever reason, love has not been evincing itself in your life, and you need to make that change. Why would you wait on that? Why? Maybe you need prayer. That's why we've got roommate. We've got Dave who's going to be back in the room to pray with you. Whatever's going on in your life, maybe you're at the end of your rope like James Lee. Don't walk out of this place without talking to someone. God's people care, and we love. Give us that opportunity. If you have a decision to make, would you come as we stand and as we sing?